All right, guys, well, for tonight, you can open your Bibles to the table of contents, page one, whatever that is for you. But we did this when we first began our uh, series on Gangston of the Old Testament. I just wanted to show you how the Old Testament is divided, how it's organized. In your English Bibles, it, it, there's a logic to it. Now, God's Word in the Old Testament definitely begins with the Torah. That's the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. That's the foundation of God's revelation to mankind. These books were written by Moses. They're written together. They trace the beginning of the world, the beginning of the nations, the beginning of the nation of Israel. Israel is called and chosen as God's holy people. They're made to live under God's law, represent God in a holy land. Deuteronomy ends with Israel established as a holy nation. They have God's law. They have this central tabernacle, a system of worship, a priesthood. They have multiplied into a numerous people. They're even there camped out in the plains of Moab, east of the Jordan River, in the south. They have everything. All that's left is for them to just now cross that Jordan and and take this land that God had given to them and promised to them. And that next chapter in Israel's history and also in God's revelation is told in the, the book we're studying this evening. That's Joshua. But it also marks the first book in the next division of the Old Testament. And so if, you, if you're in your table of contents, starting in Joshua, the next 12 books, at least in the English Old Testament, are often referred to as the historical books. Joshua judges, judges Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Those books go on to trace the national history of Israel living in the land in a mostly chronological fashion. Joshua starts this train. It tells us how God kept his promises to bring Israel into the Holy Land and to bless them. But at the same time, as these books go on, we find that many future generations did not keep up their end of the bargain or their end of the covenant. They were not believing or faithful. So their time in the land was not always a blessing. Life could be very hard in this land. Foreign powers could overrun this land. Even worse, Israel could, could lose this land. And if you know your Old Testament history as these books go on, Israel in time was not believing and not faithful. And the, the greatest discipline fell on them. They, they lost this land. Historical books begin with Israel entering this land, finally taking this land, but it ends with they have lost the land. The temple's destroyed. Everything is in ruins. A few eventually return, but things will never be the same. There's most certainly a lot to learn in these next 12 books in the Old Testament. We're going through book by book, doing one book per evening. This is kind of the high-level overview of the Old Testament. But for these historical books, don't let the, the title fool you. This may be referred to as the historical books, but they were not written merely as history lessons. Yeah, they record the true history of Israel, But they were inspired by God to give a a testimony of his will for Israel and for all mankind. These scriptures progressively progressively reveal God's character and his plan of salvation, which was not just for Israel, but for all the nations. And that plan obviously would culminate in a Messiah. And especially by the end of these historical books, the need for a Messiah is crystal clear. There's just no other hope. But tonight, we're not worried about the end. We're worried about the beginning, and that is going to be the book of Joshua. Joshua begins the historical books and starts things off on a mostly positive note. 
This is the record of God's faithfulness to the second generation of Israelites after the Exodus, who were themselves largely faithful. God blesses them as promised. He leads them into a promised land. The Holy Land is conquered under Joshua's charge. But the book of Joshua, named after Joshua, is not about Joshua. Surprisingly, he's, he's not the main character. The main character is God. It's not even really about the conquest. And God is the main attraction in the book of Joshua. It's written to let all future generations know that, that this God, God alone, is their refuge, their strength, their, their fighter, their deliverer, the one who will lead them into rest. And though we as a church today have no promise ahead of us of a specific parcel of land, we don't inherit Israel's land promise. Still, this applies. God is the one who will lead us into rest, who goes before us, and we need to trust and obey him. What we're going to see a lot, let's get into the study of Joshua this evening. Just go through, as we do, some background, the flow, just help you understand this book of the Old Testament, how it fits into God's unfolding plan of salvation. So some basic background. Start with the title, Joshua. From Hebrew, Yahashua or Yeshua. That's the Hebrew name translated Joshua. It means Yahweh is salvation or the Lord is salvation. It's a fitting name for this book where the Lord is the one, as we'll see, who will be delivering them. Indeed, Joshua, it's less about Joshua the man and more about the Lord's deliverance of his people into the land. And side note, you know, the name for Jesus in the Greek New Testament is Jesus or Jesus. That is transliterated from Yeshua in Hebrew. So if you didn't know, Christ's name in Hebrew is just Joshua. He would have been, or at least in English, I guess, would have been just Joshua. That was his name. His name, Jesus, means the Lord is salvation. Same thing. It's also a fitting name for Jesus, the Lord is salvation. But that said, you know, Jesus is never seen in the New Testament as a, a second Joshua. There's never any correlation between Jesus and Joshua, at least explicitly given in the New Testament, other than, well, I guess their name. Now, the author of this book, the author is never specifically referenced or mentioned in the book of Joshua, but most believe Joshua himself was the author, or maybe he employed a, a priest or a scribe close to him. But he was the eyewitness of all these events. And in chapter 24, verse 26, it mentions that he wrote down some words of a covenant he made with the people, and he, he included them with the book of the law of Moses. So it seems like the most likely candidate for this work. The audience, who, who was Joshua written for? Well, it's kind of like Deuteronomy. It's to the second generation of Israelites after the Exodus. And more specifically, it's aimed at the Israelites who are alive at the end of the conquest. You know, after the initial conquest had taken place, you go, fast forwards about 30 years, Joshua He's an old man. He's about to die. It's still that same generation, the generation of the conquest. And the conquest was largely over, but not entirely. There were still plenty of areas in the promised land they had not truly conquered. There were still nations living in the land. They needed to finish. And Joshua assembles the people. He covenants with the people. And he directed them to, to turn away from all foreign gods, worship Yahweh alone, finish conquering the land, and obey God all the days of their life, that they might dwell securely in this land. God had given them the land, but it's not over. They, they still have to be faithful from here on out. And so Joshua, it's really written as a charge 
to this generation and all future generations. Like, okay, you're now, you've got the land. So now to you and all future generations inheriting this land, Joshua has written to call them to serve this God only if they want to remain in this land and if, if it's going to go well for them in this land. Now, I'll just quickly mention that the date, when was this written? Well, Moses died around 1406 BC. Joshua was commissioned to take place. And right thereafter, the conquest starts. The book of Joshua, like I said, ends about 30 years later, 1375 BC. Joshua at that time is 110 years old. He's about to die. His death and burial is recorded as well. And the main bulk of, of the conquest is over. This is when Joshua is written, compiled. So sometime uh, in the, the late, or rather I should say the early 1300s BC, the book was written. Now it's possible a priest or a scribe continued to compile Joshua after his death, but not long after. If you read this book, I don't know if any of you have read it recently and picked up on it, but there's a phrase that keeps occurring about 10 times. And it's a, it says, and to this day. For example, you can turn now to Joshua, go to chapter 4 as a quick example. It's, it's kind of unique to Joshua. You don't see it in other books so much. Some other places, King's Chronicles. But for example, Joshua 4, verse 9, talks about the memorial stones after they crossed the Jordan. It says, then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And it says, and they are there to this day. What day? Well, you know, presumably the day that the author was writing this. Like, hey, I'm writing about a past event. Those stones are still there. And so Joshua was written at some point after the events. It's repeated several times. And so it's clearly compiled after the events, but not too far after the events. You don't have to turn here, but chapter 15, it mentions how the Jebusites still reside in Jerusalem to this day. Now, if you know, it was David who finally conquered Jerusalem. That's why it's called the city of David. So we know Joshua was written before the time of David. You can go back even further though. Chapter 6, verse 25, it says how Rahab and her family were still alive to this day. They're still living when Joshua was written. And so, long story short, Joshua, the book, was written, you know, sometime in the, and, and, you know, within one lifetime of these events, not long after this occurred. I mention that because skeptics, critics like to say Joshua is written way, way, way after the fact, and none of the stuff even really happened. There was no conquest, uh, but the internal evidence, very clear that it was written in the day of Joshua. Now, let's, lastly, we'll just talk about the setting and the setting of Joshua is, is dominantly, and obviously, that the land of Israel. It's, it's all about the land. You know, there's just, think about it, this tiny sliver of land in the Middle East. Isn't it kind of interesting? It's like not much larger around the size of New Jersey. It's bound by the Mediterranean on one side, the Jordan River on the other side, the desert to the south, technically the Euphrates River to the north. That land, it's the intersection of three major continents, Africa, Asia, Europe. You have to pass through because everything else is just desert. You're not traveling through that area. This is like the highway of three continents. And it's interesting how God chose Israel and gave them this specific parcel of land. He strategically wanted them there to be a light to the rest of the nations around the world, that they might come to know Israel's God. 
In Joshua, Israel, it's all about this land. Again, we're after the 40 years wilderness wandering. Joshua has assumed command. Israel's camped on the plains of Moab, you know, southeast of the Jordan River. And they're preparing for war. The men of war, they're assembling. They're getting ready. They're going to cross that Jordan River. Not an easy thing to do, but they're going to cross the Jordan and start the conquest. But really, you may not know this, but only six chapters, 24 chapters total, only six chapters actually talk about the conquest. So if you go into Joshua thinking like, oh, there's like a guidebook, a lot of battles, conquests, a lot of stories of battle. Like, well, there's only six chapters that actually talk about the fighting, the conquest. And many other chapters talk about, well, many other things. But what is central to every chapter is the land. It's talking about either conquering the land or preparing to conquer the land, dividing the land, living in the land, not losing the land. That's what Joshua's about. It's about the land. Now, speaking of the centrality of the land to Joshua, that's going to lead us into the, the structure, the outline of Joshua, which, again, centers around the land. Now, giving you background to these books of the Bible, it's, it's good to have like a, a little outline in your mind. Now, I didn't want to print anything. I'm trying to keep this you know, more and more basic with like an outline. So you want to like a simple you know, four-part outline to Joshua. If, if you're going to read this book yourself and, and read it for what it's worth, you see how it easily divides into four parts. You know, first, entering the land, chapters 1 through 5. Entering the land. Conquering the land, chapters 6 through 12. Distributing the land, chapters 13 through 22. And retaining the land, chapters 23 to 24. Just for the sake of you note takers, I guess I'll say it again. Entering the land, chapters 1 through 5. And then conquering the land, chapters 6 through 12. Distributing the land, Chapters 13 through 22, that's a huge section. And then retaining the land, chapters 23, 24. And just kind of, you know, dive into that a little bit and, and see the, the flow of this book as we'll get a real sense of its character as we, we got, dive and hit some of the, the highlights here. And so this first section, you know, entering the land, the first five chapters. Go to Joshua chapter 1, just read how the book begins. You always got to read how a book begins. Joshua 1, verse 1. It says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. And chapter 1 continues. It starts with a direct commission to Joshua from God. There's a change in leadership here from top down. We saw that back in Numbers 27 where Moses, he sinned. He was not going to be able to enter the promised land himself. He pleaded with God to appoint a new leader who was qualified to take the people in. And God told Moses to commission Joshua. That was way back in Numbers. It says back in Numbers 27, Joshua himself was filled with God's spirit. He was commissioned. He was chosen. Now Moses is dead. It's time. Now it's time. The time has come for him to lead. It's one thing if you're like drafted the top quarterback for the NFL. You've been chosen. You're drafted. You're the number one pick. That's, that's, a, that's quite a, a burden on your shoulders. But it's another thing for it to be game day, your first game. 
And this is Joshua. He was like drafted a long time ago, but now it's, it's real. Like Moses has died. It's all on you. And this is why God is speaking to Joshua to commission him. And what's the gist of God's message to Joshua as the book begins? Look down to verse 6. If you don't know it, program in your mind this little phrase, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. That's what Moses told Joshua before his death. He commissioned him, be strong and courageous. Now God himself is telling this to Joshua. God repeats it three times. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Down to verse 18, the people, they say it to Joshua. Only be strong and courageous. Now, why would God need to repeat that to Joshua so much? We realize because of what he was telling Joshua to do, it was a fearful, terrifying thing. Look, this land was not empty. It was filled with many people groups and city-states and nations, and they were going to fight back. They had formidable armies. It's not a cakewalk. It's going to be serious battle. Israel was outnumbered and, and, in a worldly sense, outclassed. They were not trained warriors. They were completely outmatched. And to just say, like, yeah, God's with you. Just waltz into this land. He'll, he'll give you all these cities. Won't be that hard. Just, just go. Like, yeah, it's, it's one thing for, for God to say that, but we humans have a hard time believing without seeing. And the odds were stacked against them. God did promise to go before them and to fight for them. But God wanted the leader, especially Joshua, just to be a man full of faith. You have to believe. You have to trust the Lord. He is going to fight for you. You can't do this on your own. But just be strong. Be courageous for yourself, for these people. Lead them to trust the Lord. And you will be given this land. God assures Joshua, verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I'll be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Again, verse 9, have I not commanded, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He told him that because otherwise he would have trembled and been dismayed. This was not an easy thing. But God assures Joshua the means of success is God himself. And Joshua would ensure the means of that success by, by trusting God and obeying God. And, and the guide for that was what? God's word, which had just been finally written. The, the Torah, the law of Moses was, was written. And already look at what God says about his word, which has just begun. Verses seven and eight. He says, only be strong and very courageous. <clears throat> He says, be careful to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, then you'll have success. And think about that. This this thing was just written. It was just finished. And God is already saying, this is the key to your success. This is how you will serve me and know me and find me and be faithful to me. Meditate on this word. Let this word fill you and guide you. Don't depart from it to the right or to the left. Obey it. 
and you'll be blessed. That, that still applies. God is a God who still delivers as we seek him in his word. Well, moving on. Chapter 2 is that famous tale of Rahab, the harlot, sheltering the spies. The purpose of this episode is to assure Israel that, that God is with them. Now, all the people of the land fear him because of what has happened with the Red Sea and, and Egypt. But this also stands out, Rahab herself, of an example of, of someone who truly fears the Lord and believes in the Lord. She's not even a Jew. She, she was a Gentile, a pagan of, of the nations that were going to be destroyed. Because to show you that God's plan of salvation has was, was always been and is for all the nations, those who fear him, those who seek him, will always find him. And there's not always many, but Rahab was one among many who did not. And she did fear God and trusted God, and was saved by God. And wouldn't you know it, you read the book of Matthew, Rahab the harlot shows up in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. She becomes an ancestor of the Messiah of David, and then Christ. Chapter 3, with the assurance that the first great fortified city of Canaan, Jericho, is going to fall before them. Israel finally, finally crosses the Jordan. They enter the land. Realize, though, this was like a parting, a second parting of the Red Sea. That's what this uh, memorializes, this miracle. God told them they're going to cross the Jordan. Now, it's not just a bunch of guys crossing a river. They have oxen, cattle, sheep. You know, they need food, resources, supply staff. Like, it's a huge army moving, you know, all their weapons of war. You don't just carry that across a river. It's going to be very difficult to ford this river with all their stuff for war. But God miraculously said that the second the priests carrying the ark just dip their toes into the Jordan, it will stop. It will heap up up north and it, you'll, you'll cross on dry ground. We've kind of seen something like that before with the Exodus. And God himself says that that's on purpose. This is like a second parting of the Red Sea. And why is God doing this? Chapter 3, verse 10. This is a miracle. And Joshua relates to the people regarding this miracle. He says, by this, you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. And God was just showing them with a sign that, yeah, he, he's with them. And he, he will deliver them. His, for, his, for his power, this is a small thing if they would just trust him. Chapter 4, they set up memorial stones to commemorate God's mighty act. And finally, in chapter 5, the men of Israel, including the adults, are circumcised. That wilderness generation did not circumcise their sons. That They lapsed in the covenant God gave to Abraham. But as they're now going to inherit the land promised to Abraham, it's time for them to reinstate the sign of that covenant. And so they are prepared this last way with the sign of circumcision. But look, five chapters in, zero conquest. Like there's, there's not a lot of action yet when it comes to the, the fighting and the, the battle. They're just getting ready to enter the land. But now that happens, chapters 6 through 12, that second section, conquering the land. Just continuing to kind of move through and help you get the sense of this book. You know, chapter 6 is another one of those you know, famous Sunday school stories, the fall of Jericho. March around seven times with the ark. They shout and the walls come tumbling down. But again, realize those ancient walls were formidable. It may have taken them seven months to lay siege to Jericho, the great city. 
But with God with them, those walls came down and they conquered in seven days. Fortified walls in the ancient world were a big deal. In chapter 7, though, it's a different story. And that's why these these episodes are included. Because there are dozens and dozens of battles, but actually only a few were recorded for us. Chapter 7 is the conquest of Ai. And it's a different story. God put Jericho under the ban, which meant the plunder is not for you. It's to be utterly destroyed. But Achan and some others took items from the ban. And so in the next battle, this small little town of Ai, it should have been easy to conquer. They're like, yeah, Ai, no problem. Just send like two or 3,000 guys. Just like take over Ai. But they were defeated. Massively defeated, so the hearts of the people melted like, man, we can't even conquer AI. Like, what is this? But God spoke to Joshua and said, the reason that happened is because some of the people violated my word. I said, don't take anything, any of the plunder under the ban. And God was not going to stand with them if they disobeyed. He's with them. But they need to trust and obey. So remove the wicked man from yourself and he'll be with you. And so they do so. Chapter 8, AI then is, is easily conquered. The remaining chapters, the conquest stories continue. There's some miraculous intervention. Like in chapter 10, verse 11, the, these five kings assemble together. They realize like, hey, there's, there's a formidable people group invading this land. I think we need to like come together. So five of these Canaanite kings gathered together to try and fight off Israel. Uh, but they're massively defeated. And God himself, chapter 10, verse 11, sends down hailstones from heaven, crushing many of their army. And it says those who died, or it says more, there were more who died from the hailstones than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And God was literally showing them that by his power, he was going to fight for them. He was going to deliver them. The rest of chapter 10 is kind of summarizes the southern campaign. They're taking land to the south. Chapter 11, the northern campaign, they move north, take all that land. Chapter 12, just a roll call of all the kings defeated. And then that's it. That, that's the conquest. It's just a few chapters, and actually most of them are just summary. And what you realize then, that uh, this conquest, it, it was a big deal, but that, that's not what Joshua's about. We often think that, but it's really not about the, the conquest itself. It's miraculous. It's monumental. But Joshua is only half over. It's only chapter 12. There's more to this book than the conquest. It's pointing to something more than just the conquest. What is that? Well, let's finish up this little you know, overview. In chapters 13 through 22, it's all about the, the distribution of the land or distributing the land. I'm not going to recap this. It would take too long. But these chapters go into great detail now of how all of this land is supposed to be divided up among the tribes of Israel as Moses had directed them. And so the land is portioned and allotted. It includes cities of refuge, cities for the Levites. It includes the tribes who are going to take their inheritance beyond the Jordan. All these chapters were very important for Israel living in the land. And then it finishes, though, with chapters 23 and 24. You can turn that to 23. This is all about retaining the land. Go to chapter 23. You know, now that Israel was in the land, what was going to prevent them from losing the land? What's going to stop another more powerful nation from dispossessing them? 
Well, Joshua now, he's at the end of his life and he addresses the people and he's going to tell them what must be done to keep from now losing the land. Think of verse 4, chapter 23, there's two final speeches of Joshua to the people. Kind of like Moses had those farewell speeches in Deuteronomy. This is now Joshua's turn. Just summarizing, he says in verse 4, you see, uh, he's speaking from the Lord. He says, see, I have a portion to you, these nations, which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations, which I've cut off from the Jordan, even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. And he makes clear, this is 30 years into the conquest. They've conquered a lot of these people groups, but many still remain. It's, it's not over. Israel never finished the conquest. In fact, in all their history, they, they never did. They never fully occupied the entire breadth of the land God promised to them. That is to come. But God will keep fighting for them. Joshua says, verse 5, The Lord your God, he will thrust, thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you. And you will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. God, he's still with you. This conquest, it's not over. Don't, don't rest. There's still work to be done, but God is still going to be with you. What do they need to do? Verse 6 is be very firm then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. He tells them now, Joshua knows he's going to die, but it's, it's their turn to pick up the commission that God gave to him. You want it to go well for you in this land? Just heed God's word, what he has said in his law. He says, verse 7, So that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you are to cling to the Lord your God, as you've done to this day. That's what they need to do. They need to not forsake this God. Like the previous generation, cling to him. Just trust him, follow him, and it will go well. He says in verse 9, For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. Wait, I thought they did all the fighting. I thought they spilled blood. They picked up swords. Like, they did the fighting. Well, yes, but Joshua knows that, that the credit is to God. He drove these nations out. He enabled you to do this. It says in verse 10, one of your men puts flight to a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. That's what they need to do to not lose this land. Like, like Moses said in Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God. With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the greatest command. It's what they still need to do. That's how they obey God. First and foremost, to, to love him and to put him first. Joshua knows the heart of the people, though. They're fickle. He's seen it from the previous generation. They can be unbelieving. So he gives a final charge in chapter 24. This is the verse most of you know. I bet half of you have like doormats with this verse on it. Or a little cross in your house with this verse on it. Maybe like a, a coffee mug with this verse on it. In Joshua 24, he, he tells them his final speech. This is verse 14. He says, Now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, 
whether the gods which your fathers serve, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And there's that famous verse you all know. But he just tells them, hey, you got to choose. There's no sitting the fence. And and by not choosing, you're choosing. God draws a line in the sand. You're either for me or against. You either trust or you don't. But he says, has God not done enough to show you now? You should trust this God. He's, He's the only true God. Fear him and serve him. The people respond with an affirmative. They claim, they vow, we will do it. We will serve God and God alone. And we we end Joshua, though, just asking, like, how long will that last? How long will they keep up their commitment to fear and serve God only? How long will God's blessing be on this people? How long till another nation comes and makes their life hard? And we'll find next week in the book of Judges, not long. Not long at all. But that being said, let's, let's move into real quick that the purpose of Joshua. Just to kind of to boil down now, really get to the heart of what this book is about. Now, already by hitting the highlights, you should start to gather the purpose of this book. You know, from the beginning charge to Joshua to the ending charge from Joshua, purpose is pretty clear. And again, some might assume Joshua, it's all about Joshua. It bears his name. Like I said, there's surprising little about Joshua in Joshua. This is not an autobiography or a biography. Joshua is a prominent figure, and he's on purpose like a second Moses to lead this people. He is, after all, the one who leads them through parted waters and dry ground into the promised land. But Joshua himself, just a servant of God. He's not the main character. The conquest is not the main subject. Rather, like, like all the books of the Bible... They're about God. And God himself is the main attraction of Joshua. Joshua is all about God's power and God's deliverance and God's faithfulness to his people to to finally bring them into the land he promised their fathers all those years before. Indeed, hundreds and hundreds of years before, God unconditionally promised to Abraham he was going to bless him. He's going to make his name great. Make him the father of many nations. Multiply his descendants to an innumerable number. And then finally give them a land as an inheritance forever. And all those other promises had come to pass. Except this land promise. And and now God was going to start to make good on that word. Again, what does the name Joshua mean? The Lord is salvation. And so we see this refrain throughout Joshua God fought for them. It was God who delivered them. God won them the victory. Yeah, they still had to fight and do battle, but their success is constantly attributed to God. Everything that happens here is ultimately from God and for God and for his glory. You see that all over. You go back to chapter 4 and chapter 5. I want you to see this. So go to Joshua 4 and then Joshua 5. You know, the parting of the Jordan, the second Red Sea crossing. Why did it happen? Joshua 4, 23, it says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. Why? That all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That's why he's doing it. That's what this book is about. 
It also becomes clear in chapter 5. They're about, so they've crossed the Jordan. They're, they're on the way to Jericho. The first battle, it has begun. But it's a, it's a blink and you'll miss it passage. Like three little verses that are hugely significant as to what this book is about. That God is literally going before them to fight. And this is Joshua having his own kind of burning bush encountering God moment. But look at verse 13 of chapter 5. It says, now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, no, rather I indeed came now as captain of the host of Yahweh of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. And said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Same thing God said to Moses at the burning bush. Exact same thing. This is one of those very clear instances. This is a a theophany. Some would say, call it a Christophany. We would affirm a pre-incarnate Christ come down. There are many instances of this in the Old Testament. This is God come down. This was not an angel. This was the angel of the Lord, the captain of the Lord of hosts, or or the hosts of the Lord, rather. This was Christ, a pre-incarnate Christ. It's not a true incarnation. That did not happen until through Mary. But in some way, in some form, he made himself visible to Joshua as the commander of the Lord's armies. And Joshua rightly bows down to worship. And this angel, this messenger does not say, stand up, don't worship me. He says, yeah, that's about right. But just take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Uh, but this is a big deal. This, what, why is this here? It's again, a blink and you'll miss it little passage. But this is literally showing Israel like God is coming down to fight for them to spiritually deliver them, to physically deliver them, to go before them. And uh, of course, Israel in the Old Testament sees this with a veil, cannot fully understand this passage, but us looking through the veil from the New Testament know crystal clear what God is doing in and through this people and these events. It's a powerful passage. The point though, God is fighting for them. God is literally doing this with and for them. And you even look chapter 6, the conquest of, of uh, Jericho. You know, the whole marching around the city seven times, that's not a military strategy. Like, that's not a smart move, especially today. Like, they'll just shoot you. But it was more ritual. This was just a ritual. Why? Just purely to show them, like, if you do what God says, he'll deliver you. He will bless you. He will lead you. Just do what he says. And they just did what he said. And the walls just fell down. It's, it was not natural. This was supernatural. And all the military strategies, they come from God in this book. They're not Joshua's military brilliance. They all literally come from God. God said, do this, now do that. Like it all the way throughout, so it goes. God is the one who told them to enter the land. God parted the way for them. God's the real commander of their army. God's going to fight for them. He will deliver them. When they listen to God, they win battles. When they don't listen to God, they lose battles. The point is that it's just all about God. And their relationship to this God. And so yes, in Joshua, you see a history of the conquest. Sure. But it's not just history. A theological point is being made. God is using military history to make that point. 
And the purpose then of Joshua is to convey to the people how God is powerful and he's faithful. Their God has made several ongoing covenant promises to this people. But how can they, how can they trust this God and his promises? Well, he's already shown them, but in Joshua, he proves yet again his power and his faithfulness. That God will always do as he says. Nothing can stop him from bringing about his promises, even if it seems impossible. But the people, they themselves must respond in faith and obedience if they want to enjoy the benefits of those promises. If you want to enter the blessing of the land, well, you need to trust and obey. And so altogether, Joshua was written to the, the posterity of Israel that they might trust in their faithful almighty God and respond to him with their own faith and obedience, not turning aside from his word to the right or to the left. Well, our time's almost up, but that's okay. There's one special theme I want to talk about, the land, and, and it's, I put it short on purpose. Good thing I did that. But we want to cover like a special focus, special theme real quick here. And, and in Joshua, that, it's the land. It's, apart from obviously the, the, the centrality on God, the land itself is a special theme. But I want you to just quickly think as we finish our time, though, like why, why the land was such a big deal? Why this land mattered so much to God? Why it mattered so much to Israel? Why is this such a big deal? Well, for one, God's word was at stake here. Like God didn't have to, but in his own will, he called Abraham, and then he just made this unilateral promise. I'm going to give to your descendants this land. And God said, here's, here's what we're talking about. Euphrates to Egypt, like he just, this is it. So God just promised it on his own. But ever since, well, he, he bound himself. God has to keep his word. And so God's word is at stake. That's why this land is such a big deal. Because God just chose to promise them this land for his greater purposes. And from the, from the perspective of Israel, though, the answer comes in understanding like what the land represents to Israel from their perspective. And what we find is that possession of this promised land in a way, represented Israel's relationship with God. If they trusted and obeyed God, they would prosper and live long in this land. But if they did not trust and obey, well, they're going to have a hard time in the land. They might even be invaded. They might even lose the land. And so you find that Israel's relationship to the land itself is almost like a, a bellwether of their relationship with God. And this is why when Israel ultimately lost the land, they question their status as the chosen people of God. You know, like, what could this mean? What, what is Israel without the land? Now, their exile did not mean God revoked their status as his chosen people. They always will be a nation among nations because of God's unconditional promise to them. And although they, they lost the land in discipline, God will one day restore to them the land, bring to fulfillment all their promises. But their relationship to the land itself was meant to be like a, a, a measuring rod for their relationship with God. They would see their life in the land, blessing or curse, prosperity or, or poverty, and, and let it be known because of God's blessings and curses promised. Uh, that had to do with not their, not their plowing techniques, not how great of farmers they were, but had to do with, are you trusting and obeying this God or not? Are you, are you veering away? Are you serving other gods? Or are you just trusting in him alone? And he proved it in Exodus. He proved it in Joshua. If you just trust him, 
It's not always easy, but if you truly have faith, love him, set your heart upon him, he'll care for you. He will deliver you. He will be with you. He'll bless you. He'll lead you into his ultimate rest. That would become the test for the rest of Israel. Sometimes succeed, most times they would fail. And like I said, it all though goes to culminate in uh, the need for for a a greater deliverer, someone who can do for us what we can't do for ourselves in trusting and obeying God. That's a lesson for another time. Just to uh, finally, that's kind of ironic, finally finish our time. Just end with a little uh, word of application for today. You know, as a church, we don't relate to the same physical land promises as Israel. God's not promised to give us a physical parcel of land as the church, but we do await a greater promised land. And, And the book of Hebrews parallels the promised land and the eternal rest that God has for all of his people. What assures us we're going to get there? We're going to see that land. What assures us of our victory? How will we know we're going to finish this life? It's filled with hardships, threats to our faith and our endurance. How can we be assured we're going to see heaven's shores and enter God's rest? Well, just be strong and courageous. You need to know the Lord fights for you too. With his people, he's with them. He goes before them. He leads them. He guides them. Joshua, it's not written directly to the church, but the application still stands. He's not going to leave or forsake you either. He's with all of his people. And that today is, is us. So what do you need to do? Same thing Joshua told the people still fully applies to us. Don't doubt him. Don't turn away from him. Don't turn aside from him, but fear him and trust him. Obey him and then don't turn aside from his word to the right or to the left. It's still what guides us. It's still how we know this God and enter into his blessing. And going back to chapter 1, 7 and 8. What God said to Joshua is our application. And only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. And that refrain is continued throughout. David learned that lesson. He wrote about it in Psalm 1. Christ knew that lesson. And God's given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word. He's even given us his spirit. It's not just the leader who's spirit-filled like Joshua and Moses. Now all of God's people are spirit-filled. And God is literally with us. Yet we must still do battle. We wage war against sin and the flesh, Satan and the world. But God is with us to enable us to, to persevere. And so we just, we press on. With, with his word in our hand as our sword, we, we press on. Trusting him and obeying him. And we can rest assured that, and this is a, a kind of a beautiful thought, that the same divine warrior, the same divine warrior who visited Joshua, that day. He would come again. This time though incarnate, humbling himself, be born of a virgin. And he would come and die for us to conquer our real enemies, sin, Satan, death. He would rise again, he would prove his victory, God's victory over them. And in Christ, we, we've already won the war. The, the conquest is over. The land's divided. You just need to persevere in your faith. The same savior will deliver you safely home.
Just trust in him, trust in his word, obey his promises. Persevere. That's, that's our part. God will do his part. He will preserve. He's faithful. You can trust in him. You must persevere. It's fitting to end with what Paul said, 2 Timothy 4.18. He said, his confidence that the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We can have assurance with that, even from Joshua. Well, that'll be it for our time. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we take comfort in that thought and, and the glory that you've revealed in, in Christ in the scriptures. He's, he's found throughout. We see his imprint throughout, sometimes direct, sometimes indirect. But, but what a thought that the same divine warrior that, that went before Joshua to assure him of victory now assures us of our victory. He's, in fact, literally come down to, to grant us victory against our foes. We don't wage war against the flesh anymore, Lord. We, we're not against nations and kingdoms, but rather spiritual kingdoms and sin, Satan, you know, the world, enemies of our soul. Be sent Christ to forgive us, for we were once your enemies, and to deliver us, to, to cost yourself. He died to conquer, and he rose again, proving his victory, that we might have everlasting hope. You've done so much for us, Lord. We, we, we thank you for it, and also just marvel at, at the majesty of your plan of salvation. That's un, uh, unraveled throughout scripture. Learn a little bit about that in Joshua. I pray we, we derive the same hope and the same call to be strong and courageous, just to trust in this God. We have no reason not to trust him. You've done nothing but deliver us. You've been nothing but faithful to us. We see it in your word. We see it in our lives. May we even leave this evening just trusting you more, counting in your promises, heeding your word, not turning aside to the right or to the left, but just trusting and obeying our good God. We thank you for going before us. May you continue to do so. We will trust in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.